You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. Very glad that you chose to worship with us this morning. Uh, We're going to pick back up in a series uh, that we started in, I think, August of last year. We took a little bit of break uh, over the the holidays to do our Give series and our Serve the City series. We want to jump back into 1 1 Corinthians in that series today. But before before we do that, I want to make a point about part of the reason why we do uh, what we call our family of churches. So if you're not familiar with us, we're, we're one of three churches in the Midtown Fellowship family of churches. So we have us, our two-notch church. We also have a downtown church and a Lexington church. And we all synced up together during our Serve the City weekend to be able to serve some of the more marginalized and vulnerable people in our city. And to, just so you're aware of why we, we link up as closely as we do, I have some statistics for you from the amount of serving that we were able to do together as a family of churches uh, this past weekend, about a week ago. We had a total of 702 total participants over the weekend. 94 of those were children. 3,606 hours worked over one weekend. If you add that all together, that is 1.75 years worth of work done in one weekend. It is important that we as the body of Christ partner. You can make noise for that. I appreciate that. You can make noise for that. It is important that we as a family of churches, that we connect together, that we serve alongside one another. 1.75 years worth of service in one weekend. Amen. And our, and our prayer is that we would continue to grow during our Serve the City weekend, that we would have more people serving and more hours of service done towards our city. This is one of the reasons why we do what we do. Wanted to make sure you knew that and were able to celebrate that uh, with us. Like I said earlier, we're going to be jumping into our First Corinthians series. You can go ahead and turn to First Corinthians chapter 10 if you've got a Bible with you. If you want to scroll on your phone, that's fine. I want to jump back in. I want to catch you up and, and make sure we're all on the same page. I know it's been a few months since we've been in 1 Corinthians. So basically, Paul, the Apostle Paul comes to the city of Corinth, very diverse city, diverse socioeconomically, diverse ethnically, even diverse religiously, as, as many people worshiped a lot of different gods. Most people in general were okay with you worshiping whatever God you worship, but they were not okay with you saying your God is the only God that you should worship or that you are able to to worship. But in general, people worshiped a lot of different gods there. So Paul comes in, preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. People start placing faith in Jesus as he's telling them, hey, you have to forsake all these other idols, all these other false gods. You have to forsake those and turn to Christ and worship him and follow him and place your faith in him. That, that, that Christ was worthy of your exclusive worship. That he's not just one of many gods, that he is the God. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he is the one you are to submit to above everything else. So this causes a little bit of problem, a little bit of tension in Corinth, right? Because there in Corinth, you have so many people worshiping so many different things that the church now has this, this opposition, not only opposition, but has this dilemma. Are we going to continue on try, trying to move with the culture, and do, and do what everyone around us does, or are we going to stand out as God has called us to as his holy people? You see, there was now this church in the city of Corinth, but the problem is there was too much of the city of Corinth within the church. 
There was too much of the influence of the culture around the church. And so now they, they, they write these letters to Paul asking questions like, what do we do with idolatry? Is it okay? And if you were with us uh, in the fall, you know, they talked about, is it okay if we eat food that's sacrificed to idols? Like, this is a big issue uh, that was addressed in chapter 8. Today, in chapter 10, Paul is very direct. Paul instructs them in ways that are oftentimes very hard for us to hear. Corinthians were having trouble letting go of these false gods that the culture around them was worshiping. They want to continue to hold on to this idolatry. And these 14 verses that we'll be in in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 reveal to us God's heart towards idolatry, how he feels about it. So the task for us as Christians primarily is to ask the question, do we feel the same way towards our idolatry as God does? Do we feel the same way towards our sin as God does. Let's pick it up starting at verse 1. We'll read the first six verses together. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And, that, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The first five five verses of this chapter, Paul is drawing these parallels between the Corinthian church and God's people in the Old Testament, the the, the Israelites. He, He says... Uh, in verse 2, that they were all baptized into Moses. And he, he's, he's connecting that to all of those who were part of the church would have been baptized as well. He says they all ate the same spiritual food. The, the Corinthians would have understood this to be the bread that we take during communion. That, and God fed them with, with, with heavenly bread, what we know as manna, where God brought them bread miraculously from the sky, and they partook in that. Verse 4, he says, we all drank the same spiritual drink. This is likely referring to uh, the, the, the Jews or the wine or whatever they had when they took communion as well. So he's, he's saying, hey, you have some similarities with these people. They're an example for you. you, they, they were, you were baptized just like in a way they were baptized. You, you eat the spiritual food and the spiritual drink during communion just like God gave them this, this miracle food and spiritual drink as well. It says, yet God wasn't pleased with them. Yet God wasn't pleased with how they live. The, the obvious implication is that we must examine ourselves and ask the same question. Are, are we relying on these specific things to, to make us believe that God is pleased with us because maybe we've been baptized or maybe we've partaken in communion before? There are these the things that we rely on that we might think that God is pleased with us or with the way that we live. There's this part I want to explain in verse 6. That stands out to me as much as I was reading through this passage, I couldn't get away from this phrase that we see at the end of verse 6. He says that these things happen that we might not desire evil as they did. That's a very different statement from him saying that we might not do the bad things that they did. It's a very different statement. It's one thing to, to, to do something that's wrong. It's another thing to desire evil. Sin and idolatry in the Bible is not merely something that we do at a hand level. It's not merely what people can see, but it is internal all the way to our desires. And Paul is saying that their problem was they desired evil. They wanted it. They craved evil. Now, I believe in general, we don't 
think of our own sin as evil. I struggle with this. This is kind of my personality. What comes to your mind when you think of the word evil? Maybe murder, or someone say witchcraft, racism, brutality. Oftentimes it's things that allow us to point the finger at other people and say those are the evil ones. Things that we can separate from ourselves, the things that we generally refer to as evil. But as we'll see later in verse 7, God is referring to their idolatry when he's talking about the evil that they desire. Idolatry is the relying on or trusting in or loving anything in God's creation more than we love and trust and rely on him. Anything. Anything that we put in God's place or exalt over him, anything that we feel like we actually need more than him, anything that we think we love or anything that we love more than we love him, the Bible referred to that as idolatry. And in this passage, we see that God sees that as evil. Evil. A synonym would be wicked. God is a creator. He's a sustainer and engineer of life itself. He, he is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just. He's never sinned or done anything wrong. He's the sinless one. He is in himself love. He is the source of every single blessing and every moment of joy that you've ever experienced in your entire life. He created a good world for us to live in that got ruined because of our idolatry and sin. It was ruined and corrupted because we, we, we chose to follow our own path. Maybe, maybe we idolized our own selves, our own authority, and said we, we want to do what we want to do instead of following God. Idolatry gave rise to everything that is wrong with the world. The world is corrupted now because of idolatry and sin. And to fix the problem... Instead of God just washing his hands of us, instead of him saying, well, they don't want me, so I'm going to let them, I'm going to leave them to their own devices. Instead of him giving us the judgment that we deserve, if we are in him, instead he forgives us, lovingly pursues us, comes down from the paradise of heaven, suffers alongside of us, suffers the, the, the problems that our own idolatry caused, suffers the problems that our rejection of him caused, He shows us the way of righteousness, promises that all who believe in him will be saved from the horrible suffering that our idolatry has caused. He is crucified and condemned on the cross for our sins. He forgives us for every single sin and every ounce of idolatry that we've ever committed in our lives. And he gets up out of the grave, promising freedom and paradise to all who would just place faith in him. Idolatry is spitting in the face of his grace. It's the belief that the greatest, most powerful, most wise, most loving, most gracious, most merciful being of the universe isn't actually worthy of being followed, that he isn't worthy of being trusted. It, it is, idolatry is the rebellion against the highest king of the universe. It's us stating that he is not worthy to be our king. In a word, idolatry is evil. It's evil of the highest degree. It is the rejection of the one true thing that is actually pure and good and right in the world, which is God himself. And this idolatry, this evil, it happens in ways that are very common and difficult to notice at times. You can idolize many things. We can make many things into idols. We can idolize the approval approval of other people. 
We care more about people approving of you than God approving of you. You see this play out in the lives of Christians where we, we won't share our faith and the good news of Jesus with others because we're scared that people might not like us or might not think highly of us. This is what we are gripped by our idolatry. You can idolize anything in God's creation. You can idolize food. If the primary way or the first thing you do to deal with difficulty in life is run to comfort food more than running to God, you idolize food. You can idolize rest, something God gave us to be a great thing and become so lazy that we neglect our responsibilities to take care of ourselves, to take care of others. We can idolize comfort. So anytime God wants you to do something that's outside of your comfort zone, you refuse to do it. You can idolize a a person or a relationship. You care more about being with them than you care about being with God. You can idolize anything. You can idolize your kids. Doing everything in your power to make sure that they're happy and you haven't spent a moment meditating on God and his word. And the truth is, every sin that we commit, every one of them, at the root of it, at the bottom of it, is some form of idolatry. It's some form of choosing something over God. It's some form of believing that, that I can't really trust God and follow him as he calls me to do so. I, I need to cling to something else. Maybe, maybe it's myself. I need to submit to my own rules and see myself as the ultimate authority. Psalm chapter 16, verse 4 is very helpful to me. It reads, the sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. The sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. Part of the reason that God hates idolatry as much as he does, it's because he knows it causes us harm. He knows that our sorrows, our, our sadness will be multiplied by our idolatry. Do, do you perceive that in the, in the temptations that you experience? Do you, do you understand that this is leading down a path of more destruction and sadness and pain for you and often for those around you? We see this when someone idolizes sex. Someone ends up having an affair, even though they know the damage that it could easily cause to their family, to them. You see this when people idolize the approval of others, like I brought up a little earlier. You can run yourself ragged trying to meet other people's expectations, knowing full well that you can't please everybody. Some people idolize success. And then you idolize success, and then you realize there's no amount of achievement that will actually satisfy, and there's always another level, and there's always more, and you always feel like, well, if I just get to this point, then I'll be good. If I just achieve this thing, then I will be okay. We were made to receive unlimited hope and joy and peace and love and validation and dignity from God. Our our hearts were made to be filled up from this endless well that is our God. And anything else you go to, any other well that you go to to drink from to find that will always, always, always disappoint. It will never be enough. It will always show itself to be empty in the end. Idolatry is everything that's wrong with the world. It is evil. And because of that, and this is one of the main points, God hates it. Hates it. I would say probably more than you hate anything that you've ever seen. He hates it. He knows we will only know true eternal joy when we worship him and him alone. He knows all the tears and the sorrow that idolatry has caused to the ones that he loves 
He hates it because it's evil. Go back to verse 6 really quick in, in, in 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So quick recap, he's already shown how the, the parallel between the Corinthians and by extension us as well that we have with God's people in the Old Testament. And he points out that the, we have these examples so that we do not desire evil as they did. And I believe his key point is that you can have tasted to some degree the blessings of God and still desire evil. Evil, sin, and idolatry, again, it's not a surface level issue. It's something that runs deep inside of us. And if we see clearly, we see that anytime we elevate something over God, it's because deep down we desire evil. Anytime we elevate something over God, it reveals that deep down we actually desire evil. See, we can't, we can't just say that, well, the devil tempted me. We can't just say that, well, this person, they know they shouldn't have said that to me because when they said that, they knew I was going to go off. We can't just blame everyone else. At some point, we have to turn inside and say, there is something broken about my desires in this. I desire what is broken. The Greek word for desire, that means to crave. It means to lust after something. It can, it can mean to be a lover of something or to be eager to have something. Paul says, I'm showing you these examples for the Old Testament so that you wouldn't eagerly pursue something that ultimately leads to destruction, so that you wouldn't eagerly desire evil, so that we would hate evil as God does. And we're going to see just how much he hates it in this passage. And for some of us, it's going to be very jarring. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So just, just to give you a quick heads up, that eat and drink and, and rose up to play is probably referring to a feast. And actually, the, the language of it is very similar to the way a lot of idol, worship, uh, idol worshiping feasts would have been done. And that word to play kind of has some type of sexual connotation to it. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. This is a reference to Exodus 32. The people had made themselves an idol in the image of a golden calf. If you're familiar with the story, God had just saved them from slavery in Egypt through powerful and wondrous acts. He just revealed who he was to them. He was giving them his law. He, he basically made this, they made this agreement. Hey, if you will follow me, I will be your God and I will treasure and cherish you above all else in my creation. If you will be mine. They said, yes, we, we will be yours. We will follow you. And so God has given uh, Moses the, the, the law, which is the instruction. Okay, here's what it looks like to be my people. And while that's going on, while God is revealing to them what it looks like to actually follow him, they make this golden calf, which they worship. Now, the imagery of a calf or a bull made into a structure at that time was a common form of worship in that area where they were, near Egypt and in the ancient Near East. It was a very common thing that people worship. And what they did was they, they brought that in and said, hey, this is, this is the God, Yahweh, who brought us out of slavery in Egypt. So they, they were mixing in this false worship in with, with the worship of God, and God was furious. And he was furious. He hated it. This, this mixed worship, this, this, this believing that, you, that, we can, that you can just worship God, but also worship whatever it is that you want to worship. He was 
furious. They had this feast worshiping this false god, and it says that 23,000 died that day. This was God pouring out his wrath against idolatry. Idolatry is an egregious evil. God hates it. Paul keeps going. Pick up at verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Verse 9 is referring to Numbers chapter 21. The Israelites, they, they grew displeased with God and they spoke against him. They didn't like how he was providing for them in the wilderness. It says that the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And finally, they came to Moses and they confessed their sin and said, God, we, we've sinned against you. And if you know the story, God put a, a snake up on a pole and if they would just look to it, then they would be healed, that they would be saved from, from, this, from this punishment, this judgment that they were receiving. We see in John chapter 3 that Jesus says that he is actually the snake that is lifted up. That, that he is the one that if we would look to him, that we will not receive the, the judgment for our sin that we actually deserve. We will find healing in him. In verse 10, we have a similar instance. Exodus chapter 16, in uh, verse 2, I won't read it, but it says that the whole congregation grumbled before God. They were complainers. This term is, is an expression of, of unwarranted dis dissatisfaction. Was, was at the root of, of grumbling is this belief that God isn't really good enough. That God's provision for me isn't enough. That I'm not content by the fact that I have God, his presence with me, and his provision for me. I need more. I am discontent in this current state where I am, and I need more. So they grumbled against God. Being dissatisfied with God as, as their provider. Their heart accused God of not truly being good. Having God in of himself isn't good enough for me. I need more. At this time, God's people were being fed manna from heaven. He was dropping bread out of the sky for them every day. Except for the Sabbath where he dropped extra the day before. And they complained. It wasn't good enough for them. And God's wrath was poured out on them because of their rebellion against him. Because they desired evil. Now, there are some who say that God's wrath proves that he's not loving. There are some who see instances of God's judgment and his anger poured out, and they conclude, well, he can't be loving if he does this. Now, there's no way he can actually be a loving God and send this type of judgment to this people, to the world. But those that say that are forgetting the time and place in history where his wrath was poured out like never before, in the most shocking way in all of history. On the cross of Calvary where Jesus died, God poured out his anger against sin on his very son so that sinners like you and me could turn away from our sin and place faith in him and go to be with him. God's wrath and judgment does not mean he does not love. It means he hates sin and that there are consequences for sin. 
It doesn't mean he doesn't love. If he didn't love, then, then the majority of his wrath that we see poured out in the Bible wouldn't be poured out on his own son so that we could be saved. We have to be able to hold two things in tension, that God is incredibly loving and that God is furious with the evil that is idolatry. We have to be able to hold both of those intentions. Generally speaking, you find people that holds one above the other. One, talk more about his grace and less about his holiness, right? Talk more about his standard and less about the fact that he forgives. It is difficult for us to hold both of these. In our minds, we, we, we tend to believe that they are opposed to each other. The Bible does not speak about these that way. But that God is incredibly loving. And he has incredible, unthinkable hatred for sin and idolatry. And the cross is the place that we see both of those to be true. That he hates sin so much that when Jesus put our sin upon himself, he condemned his son on the cross. And that he loves sinful idolaters so much that he was willing to put our sin and our guilt on his son Jesus that we might still come to know him even though we are an idolatrous people. The cross allows us to see God in his fullness the complexities of his character, his, how glorious he is, that he can still love those who have sinned against him and rejected him so many times. God hates sin and idolatry. It is egregious. It is filthy. And thus he poured out his wrath on his son on our behalf. When I read stories like this in the Old Testament, one thing becomes very clear for me. And if, you're, and if you're dealing with this, this, this tension that I sometimes feel where I'm like, God, I feel like you're too, that's too harsh. God, I feel like that's too harsh. There's one thing that sticks out of my mind when I'm going through the Old Testament. I see instances of his wrath poured out, and that's that I don't hate sin the way God does. That's that I don't feel about sin the way that God does. I don't, I don't hate idolatry the way that he does. For me, idolatry is something that's like, well, yeah, it's probably not good. I'll try to do better. For him, it's like, this is the worst thing in the world, the fact that we will put anything over him. And so when I don't see sin and idolatry the way that God does, and I don't hate it the way that he does, then I feel like I can now put myself in the judge seat right, and put God on trial and, and ask the question, can God actually be just and do this? I make myself the judge and the jury, and I put God on trial because I don't see sin the way that he does. If you see passages in the Bible like this and you begin to question, can God do this? Is this okay for God to be angry like this, to pour out his judgment like this? I will submit to you that you do the exact same thing, that you believe you actually can judge God. When we arrive at these types of conclusions, it reveals something very real about us. That oftentimes we don't seek a God, we seek a puppet. We don't seek someone who reigns over all, we seek someone that we can control. We want a genie. We want a genie, somebody who's extremely powerful, but we still at the end of the day get to tell him what to do, what he can do, what he should do, what he shouldn't do. We want a genie. We want someone we can manipulate. We don't want someone we can submit to. We want someone who submits to our desires. We don't want to be made in God's image. We want to make God into our image. Here's the foolishness of that. Out of all the people, a murderer shouldn't be the one who determines what the sentence of a murderer is. 
A lawbreaker can't be the one that determines what the penalty for breaking a law is. You, there's no way you can be objective. You, you're going you're to minimize the punishment that is there. The only one who is fit, the only one who is right and worthy to make a call on what the punishment for sin is, is the one who has not sinned. The only one who has the right to do it. The only one who can with any type of justice make such a claim is the one who has not sinned. It's the sinless one. We would never let murderers set what the punishment for murder is. We know that that's foolish. But God, the pure one, the righteous one, the holy judge that sits high but looks low, the powerful one who is near those who are weak, the one who has never sinned. No, he is the only one who can be trusted with ascribing what is just and what is not and what is evil and what is not. And he says that the idolatry that lurks in our hearts is evil and worthy Romans 6.23, worthy of death, he says. And that same one, that just one, put that sin on himself and got on the cross and suffered that penalty so that we wouldn't have to suffer condemnation before God. There is no one more worthy of deciding what is just and what is not than him. Not only the sinless one, but the one who takes the penalty for the sinful ones. The one who accepts his own penalty that he did not deserve. Let's continue on verse 12. Therefore, let, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul gives a warning to those of us who think we're standing when in fact we are falling into this idolatry. Corinthians most likely thought that because they were baptized and we partake in communion. You know, I eat the bread, I drink the juice at, at the communion times. Well, we good, right? Like me and God, we must be on good terms. We must be okay. And yet they suffered his wrath in the desert. Remember what he said to them in verses 2 through 5. Let's look at it again. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. There are a lot of people that have done a lot of church things that aren't actually followers of Jesus. That actually just worship the gods of our culture today. I was saying to another uh, pastor, and I agree with this statement. He said, I've seen more people walk away from the faith because they were idolizing a relationship that God told them they couldn't have than, any other, than anything else. Romance, I believe, to be, as much as anything else, one of the major idols of our day. And you see that when people are walking away from the faith, say, okay, God, you're saying I can't have this type of relationship? I'm gone. I'm out. This is the idolatry of choice, it seems, of our country today. He's saying, you're like the Israelites. You claim to follow God, but you just worship the idols of the culture. Today, you're just doing what everyone else around you is doing. It serves as a warning for us who have been in the church but actually aren't walking with God. But it also serves as a warning for all the Jesus followers who have maybe gotten arrogant, who maybe have let our guards down in our fight against sin, who maybe, who maybe we're just at a place where we're more upset about everyone else's sin than we're upset about our own sin. And oftentimes we have this excuse in our heads where we think, well, our temptation, our struggle is different from everyone else's. They can't understand what I'm going through. And we justify in our minds because this, this struggle that we have is so difficult, it's so challenging, it's harder than everyone else's. So we justify. We couldn't ex- 
really expect me to follow Christ in this area, Paul addresses us in verse 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Greek word there, overtaken, means to lay hold of something. It means to, to claim, to seize, to apprehend, to, to take possession of something. Paul says that this is what temptation does. It, it lays hold to us. It seizes us. Many of us in here, if you're like me, Paul didn't have to tell you that that's what temptation does. You felt that. You've sensed that. You, you, you felt a temptation so strong before that you didn't feel like you could get free from it. You didn't, you didn't feel like you could follow God and what he is calling us to do and how he is calling us to live. It causes us to get extremely defensive anytime someone calls us out in any sin. It causes us to feel hopeless against fighting this sin and that leads us to being apathetic. It causes us to feel alone and incapable of fighting when we believe that, that our situation is so unique that we can't get through it. But Paul isn't just saying that you're not alone in your temptation. Paul is saying your temptation is common. He's not just saying that there's someone else who's struggling. He's saying it's common. He's saying a lot of people dealing with the exact same thing that you are dealing with. He's saying that this is, this is human, so to speak. That, that word that actually is interpreted common or common to man, excuse me, is actually where you could also interpret as human. He's saying this is a human struggle that you have here. Paul's encouraging us today, hey, this fight you're in, you've got brothers and sisters all over that are going through the same thing. Let's keep reading. He says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he always, he will also, excuse me, provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He says, and because of God's faithfulness, you can know that he has a way of escape. Remember what that, what that word meant that from being seized by temptation, that, that there is a way of escape. Yes, it is seeking to, to grab you, to lay hold of you. He's saying, but there is a way of escape for you. He's saying, remember, your temptation is not stronger than your God is. I'll say that again. Your temptation is not stronger than your God is. Your temptation to worship idols is not more per persistent than your God is. Yes, temptation has laid hold of you, but I need you to know something, that there is something else that, that has laid hold of you, and that is God himself. That temptation is not the only thing that has overtaken you, that it's not the only thing that has seized you and gripped you, but that God Almighty himself has also laid hold of you, and he is stronger than your temptation is. May we take heart in our fight against sin. The grip of your sinful temptation is not stronger than the, than the grip of your faithful God. May we remember this. You have been bought by the death of Jesus, and you are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness, Paul says in his letter to the Roman church. And so he tells us his final instruction, verse 14. says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Paul concludes this session. He's made some hard points. He's, he's challenged them. Now he's seeking to encourage them at the end. He says, my beloved. It's a word that means those who are dear to me. It's the same word God the Father uses when he speaks from heaven 
about his son Jesus when he's about to be baptized, when he says, this is my beloved son, Paul gives this loving command. He's speaking to those that he loves. He's pleading with them out of his love for them. And he says, flee from idolatry. He says, run from it. He just showed us that temptation lays hold of us. It seizes us. He says, so run from it. Don't play with it. You know what it does. It overtakes you. It, it, it grabs you. It seizes you. It lays hold of you. So run from it. He doesn't say stand and fight against it. He says flee. The word flee means to, to run away from something dangerous and to a place of safety. It's, it's, it's kind of an extreme term. If on your way here today you saw someone fleeing down the street, running as if something was after them, it would catch your attention. You'd be like, what? What, what, what is going on? You would assume that there's a, a, a severe danger that is present. He, he's, he's saying that our response and our trying to get away from whatever idol has seized us, we should be willing to even take extreme measures. God is faithful to provide a way of escape. He's saying, so run from it. Run from your idolatry. The word flee, again, this is not a mild and calm term. So, for example, if you may hear me talking, you know money is an idol for you. Jesus said you cannot worship God and money. Maybe you're listening, you say money is a thing for you. What does it look like? That's the question for all of us today. What does it look like for us to, for us to flee from this idolatry because we acknowledge how good our God is? And it might look extreme on the outside. And that's the thing about fleeing. If you see somebody flee, it probably looks extreme to you from the outside. But for them, they're just trying to be safe. It's just a sensible thing to do. Because I see the danger that is present with me. What, what is the actual, sensible, reasonable thing that you should do? I was having a meeting with one brother one time, and I was like, you need to just let people in your life that you trust, likely people in your life group, just have full view into how you use your money. Every cent of you. You just need to let somebody else, because you don't make good decisions on this on your own. And when, and when the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit-filled people of God, if they say, hey, this is a bad move, you're not being a good steward over the money that God has given you, you need to listen to him. He was shocked that I would even recommend such a thing. I was like, you need to flee. This thing has control over you. This thing controls you. What does fleeing Look like for you. Maybe if you idolize food, like I said earlier, maybe it seems like fasting should likely be a consistent part of your routine and habits. Should be a pattern for you that you can flee. I don't know what it is for you, what the temptation might be, but it likely, it likely looks like you spending some time with people you care about. If you're in one of our life groups with people in your group, and just opening up. Some of us, I know we have in here, there's idolatry that has seized us and we have not told anyone about it and we're fighting it alone. And this is perpetuating the lie that we believe that no one else is struggling the way that we are struggling. And you need to open up like James 5.16 says and confess your sins one to another. You just need to be honest. My sisters, I'm, I'm struggling with this. This is just where, this, this is where I'm at. I, I've been yielding to this sin and to this idolatry. Will you fight this alongside me? Maybe fleeing for you means you need to stop watching your favorite TV show or stop listening to music from your favorite artists. Maybe you need to get a filter put on your computer, your phone, your tablet that keeps you from indulging in pornographic material. Maybe fleeing for you looks like you're going to bed earlier each night so you can get up early in the morning and spend time with God that you might be empowered to fight against your sin. Maybe fleeing for you looks like spending less time with your significant other and more time 
with God because you prioritize them more than you prioritize God. Beloved, Paul says, beloved, those who I care about, those who are dear to me, flee from idolatry, run from it, get away from it at all costs, run to safety, Paul says. In a second, we're going to partake in communion. And the truth of the matter is is that Jesus Christ died to set us free from our idolatry, to set us free from the worship of anything that we would put over God. If you're in Jesus, he took the wrath and judgment from your idolatry that you deserve. And in doing so, he rescued you from the power and control that idolatry has over you. I pray we'll keep these things in mind as we take communion. I'll pray for us, and then I'll open the communion table. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you hate the idolatry that causes us sorrow upon sorrow, that brings so much harm and destruction to us in our lives, to your world, to your creation, that you made good. God, would you make us hate it the way you hate it? God, would you make us loathe and grieve our sin the way that you just despise it? Would you help us to see it as the evil that it is, God? Would you make us desire to see the sin and idolatry uprooted from us in the same way that you desire it. You are willing to send your son to the cross and condemn him in our place to rescue us from our idolatry. Father, would you make that a mission of ours, that we'll be passionate about fleeing idolatry, passionate about turning away from anything that would take our eyes off of you and your goodness to us, God. God, we need you. We need your power. We need your strength. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.